This evening's Old Testament reading is Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekelah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Oh God, we pray that you would be attentive to our words. I pray that you would be attentive to your servant now. We ask that you would give success to your word. We pray that you would give success to the power of your gospel into our hearts. That you would accomplish things that we are too weak to do. That your word would come alive in this place, in our hearts. And that we would know that you have done that. In Christ's name, amen. Well, tonight, I want to start a new study in the book of Nehemiah, in the Old Testament, under the theme of rebuilding the city or as we say in our language and our core values, renewal 
of the city. And I'm excited for a few reasons. First of all, it reminds us of the importance of cities. Now, we have stressed in our community here that any place that God has made, whether it be a small town in Iowa, whether it be a suburb in northern Virginia, is significant because God has made it significant. And success for us isn't graduating people that would be self-righteous by the fact that they lived in a city. When people have to leave, we want them to go and love the place that they go to. But as we look at the history of the world and the story of God, there's no doubting that cities hold a special place. They play a unique role. And I'm excited for us, as we're in a city, to think about that together, at least in a couple ways, right off the bat. Cities are important in terms of just sheer numbers. Now, if this congregation was the world, a hundred years ago, 50 of you, just 50 of you, would have lived in cities. Now, over half of you would live in a city. And in 2020, we predict that there'll be, you know, 25 cities with at least 11 million people in them. It's mind-boggling. And as Christians believe that all people are made in the image of God, that means more image bearers per square inch, right? So cities got to be important. And it's likely why God said to Jonah, the prophet, who was apt to diss the city and didn't want anything to do with it and said, God, let it just go to hell in a handbasket. God said to Jonah, should I not care about that great city? Words for us to live by. Cities are also important because they're the most diverse places on the planet. People of every ethnicity, every race, every geography. Let's just take a little poll here for fun. Uh, how many of you, you can raise your hand, don't, don't, you, know, you have to be bold to raise your hand or this isn't going to work, okay? How many of you uh, are from the northwest or the west coast? Okay. How many of you are from the southwest? And that includes the country of Texas, too. Okay? Okay, how many of you are from the Midwest? How many of you are from, from the Northeast? How many of you are from the Mid-Atlantic? How many of you from the D.C. metro area? Woo-hoo! How many of you from the Southeast? Okay, how many of you foreign-born? I mean, this is a pretty good representation, right? Geographical diversity. And our city bears that as well. 12% people foreign-born, 50% speak uh, English, or rather another language other than English at home. 170 embassies, 20,000 20, international students. We're in Chinatown, 1930. Chinese population moved in. But before that, the German population, the Goethe Institute up on 7th, is a little witness of that. Unfortunately, Chinatown has mostly just restaurants now, right? Gets to some of the tensions and problems of our cities. And cities typically have been more merciful for people to come that are immigrants because you know, you've got things that help you start easier. If you don't got a driver's license, you've got a bus you can take. Maybe you can find a grocery store with some food you're actually familiar with. Cities have been friendly places to those that have been immigrants and minorities as well. Cities are important as well because they're centers of cultural influence and impact. Uh, one person has said that city is humanity's greatest invention. 
And it's true. You go to cities, you find centers of research, centers of education, centers of medicine, architecture, art, policy. When you went into the center of Jerusalem, you find the temple. But the temple just wasn't a center of worship. It was the cross-section of science, technology, and art, all in one building. Because cities tend to draw that sort of thing. And they tend to be, global cities, interconnected. If you go out, out our doors into Chinatown, you see the Friendship Archway. That was built in celebration of the friendship between Washington, D.C., and the sister city, Beijing. And global cities are more like one another. You know, uh, Boston, Massachusetts is going to be more like Washington and New York than it will West Springfield, Massachusetts, because of things that they have in common. And fourthly, cities have always been spiritual centers. If you want to know the gods of the culture, go to the city. So you'd go to ancient Ephesus and you would find the great temple of Artemis. These days you can go in and see the mosque, the synagogue, the church. In the city you see the faves of people, also the secular gods. You want to see the god of New York? You go to Wall Street. You want to see the god of Boston? Look at the universities. You want to see the gods of D.C.? Well, it looms on Capitol Hill. Even the gods that are you know, hidden from us on a regular basis we see in the city. And in ancient Israel, God decided to concentrate his presence in a city. And the psalmist would then sing, Jerusalem, you're the joy of the earth. And then God actually commissions Nehemiah to rebuild the city because it would be the fame of his glory. Now in the New Testament we find, after the coming of Jesus Christ, God's presence isn't limited to one city or even within a church walls or buildings. But it doesn't mean the importance of the city has diminished. The book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and architect would be God. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Galatians that heavenly Jerusalem is the city of all those who believe. And of course the final chapter in the book of Revelation is the great city of heaven coming down to earth. So the church or Christians that would ever see the city as big bad have misread, misread the book of their God. Because God never left the city. God never relocated out of the city, and God has always loved the city. Cities are important. But there's a second reason why I'm excited for us to study this book. Because it, it not only informs us about where we live, but what we do. Vocation. The callings that we have. Day to day, whether it be a student, some sort of you know, job and career that you have here in the city, I want you to notice, who did God call to rebuild the wall? It wasn't a priest, it was a lay person. Nehemiah was a government official. He was a government worker. Now, 15 years earlier, God would send Ezra the priest to rebuild the temple, and Ezra is the companion book of Nehemiah. He would rebuild the temple and work on the attitude of the people, but when God wanted to make the city safe, habitable, just, he called on a lay person, Nehemiah, to start the biggest volunteer project we have recorded in the Bible. And so it's a reminder to us that our faith doesn't work outside of our jobs. That our faith and work work hand in hand. And so whether we rebuild a wall or rebuild a law or help rebuild a school or rebuild a relationship, we were doing the work of God. Extending the kingdom of God, which gets into an aspect of what's called the priesthood of all believers, which gets to our topic tonight. And that is, what does it mean to priest over a city? What does it mean to priest over a city? Now, priesting, in its most basic sense, is to stand in the gap. 
It's to advocate. It's to mediate on behalf of another. And God calls Nehemiah to priest on behalf of Jerusalem. And there are three things we need to know to be effective priests for the city. And that is knowing the city, feeling for the city, and praying over the city. Knowing the city, feeling for the city, and praying over the city. I want to ask you this question. Do you see yourself as a priest over this city? Let's explore that together. First of all, knowing the city. And that involves two things, interest and education. Now, when we move from a place and someone from that place comes to visit us, the first thing we want to know about is the people, right? How's so-and-so doing? Tell me about so-and-so. I haven't seen them. You notice when this delegation comes to Nehemiah, he not only asks about the people, he asks, how's the city doing? He wants to know how the city is faring. Because a sign of priesting over the city is you become interested in the city like you do a person. You start to see the city on a more humane level. Uh, we don't just see it as a ladder to, to, to walk up. We don't just see it as the man who's against me. We just don't see the city as a good post-college experience. We don't just see the city as a place to go out and have drinks and maybe a good time. The city becomes more like a person to us. And we find ourselves asking the question, how is the city doing? We start to care for and we start to identify with it. These are the two things that God does with the place he made, right? Read the first couple chapters of Genesis. He puts a lot of care into the place that he made. You read Psalm 104, it says he didn't stop caring for the place. He identifies with the place. The earth is the Lord and everything in it. And he calls Jerusalem my holy city. You've seen that same spirit in Nehemiah. Nehemiah cares for the city. He's overwhelmed with emotion for it. And we'll see in chapter 2, he actually does something about it. But he also identifies to the city. When he does appear before the king and asks to go to rebuild the city, the king notices that he's sad and he goes, how can I not be sad when the city where my father's graves are lies in ruin? He's identified with it. Now, some of you may have heard or seen that uh, this week is the 20th anniversary of the L.A. riots. And uh, I was listening to a uh, radio interview with a screenwriter who lived out in L.A. during that time and had written an essay. And he said, you know, when I first wanted to go to L.A., I dreamed about sunshine and palm trees and the movie industry, right? And then I finally went out there, and I still dreamed about sunshine, palm trees, and the movie industry. And I knew that, you know, there's something not happening under the surface. But I could always distract myself with my job and fun. And then Rodney King was unjustly beaten, and there was a riot. And this is what he said. The problems of the city, this is the change, the problems of the city now weren't other people's, they were all of ours. I've quit believing that the sunshine and the star power amount to anything more than a harsh white light that blinds us to reality. Two decades after Rodney King, underlying issues of inequality and stunted achievement still persist. But 20 years ago, I was just a transplant. Now I'm a resident. Where I used to just have dreams in my heart, now I've got skin in the game. The plan is no longer about how L.A. can make me big. It's about how all of us can make L.A. better. Now that is the mindset of a priest. 
You know you're starting to preach over a city when the city's welfare starts sneaking into your dreams. When the city becomes a place not of just self-interest, but of your neighbor's interest. When the city becomes, well, when God starts to rewrite your plan when you came to the city. And I've heard many of you say that. You say, well, you know, I actually came to the city originally because I thought I'd stay a couple years. And after that, you know, I'd, then I'd just move on. And you said, well, I got kind of hooked into this community. I started to get a vision for the city. And you've been here for six, seven, eight years. Because God rewrote your plan. That's a sign of someone's priesting over a city. And it shows up in little ways. You start rooting for the home team. In the case of the Redskins, you pray for the home team. <laughs> Seriously, pray for those guys. There needs to be some win. There's got to be some winning there. You find yourself, uh, you know, maybe when you open up the newspaper, turning to the metro section first. You find yourself curious about the local history. You notice that those residents that have been on your block for a long, long time are living histories. You know, they're gold. Really teach you about the city. And that leads us into the second part of it, to be educated about the city. Now, from everything we know, Nehemiah did not grow up in Jerusalem. He grew up in the capital of Persia. Yet he seems to be educated about it. When the delegation comes, he wants to ask questions. That probably went on for hours and hours. And then when he finally does go to Jerusalem, the first thing he does, he sets up a tour at night because he wants firsthand knowledge of what's happened in the city. You see the same thing with the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, the great church planner and missionary. Paul goes to Athens, and before he preaches, before he ministers, he takes on the role of a cultural anthropologist. He begins to walk around the city. He observes the city. He studies the city. He has read the literature of the culture because he can quote it right off the top of his head. Why? Because you can't priest what you don't know. Right? You cannot priest what you don't know. And you can't stand in the gap if you're not going to go. We won't be good for anything. And of course, this is what Jesus Christ, the high priest, did. Although he knew everything, he came. And for 33 years, he was in it. Studying, walking, learning. As Russ reminded us last week, a cultured person. A cultured person. And you know something? It, it's not just newcomers that need to do that. Sometimes the longer you're in a place, the lazier you get. You know, you're still working off the knowledge of the place 20, 30 years, and it's already changed. A lot of churches go down the tubes through that. You know, they've been there, and they keep thinking like it is. Their neighborhood's changing. Everything's changing around them. Then one day they wake up and go, hey, what happened? And the church folds because it wasn't looking at the city. It wasn't studying the city. And so we need to be asking questions all the time. You know, who lives in the city? Who are the groups that used to live here and don't live here anymore? What are the cultural institutions of the city? What are the stories that bring pride and glory? Where are the tension points and the pressure points? These are the questions that students and priests of the city ask. I mean, we live in the most unique city, don't we? I mean, the longer I'm here, I just go, this, there's no city like this city. We're the only city that has a license plate that protests, right? <laughs> the only one. I mean, I always tell people in Washington, you know, traffic issues revolve around, like, protests, right? This is where people come. And it goes back to the origin of the city. Most cities grow up organically and naturally. This city was created. It became a federal district, Right? And there you have the tension, because what has happened is a full-fledged city has grown up under the federal district. 
So there's issues of, well, what about budget? And what about representation? And what about who owns the land? And it's also a city that's always been a deal-making city. The city was founded through a deal. Thomas Jefferson in the south wanted the capital way down near the south. Alexander Hamilton in the north didn't want it near slaveholding states, but they needed the south to get on board so they could vote that the, the debt from the war would be taken. And so they cut a deal. And Washington's always been a, a place of people cutting deals. And it probably always will be. We've got to know this if we're going to preach the city. It's also a city that had the first majority African-American population in 1955. And although it's concerning that now it's almost just above 50%, again, bigger issues to get into. But it was the result of the great migration that occurred in 1915, where you had African-Americans moving into cities and up north, and the result in Washington, D.C., was a cultural renaissance. It was called the Washington Renaissance. Howard University was the base, producing people like Thurgood Marshall and Langston Hughes. It became just this vibrant place of amazing culture. Business, newspaper, architectures, plays, theater, entertainment. The Black Broadway. You know, this past week, uh, I had a chance to meet up with one of our teachers who had uh, scheduled a field trip to the Lincoln Theater on U Street. And she was studying the 20s and 30s and said, would you come and talk a little bit about jazz, 20s and 30s, and play a little jazz? So myself and uh, Rob went over there. He brought his horn. And, you know, I came into the office afterward, and I said, well, I reached one of my life goals, friends. Uh, I've played at the Lincoln Theater. <laughs> now, they were so excited. But really, tell me about it, Glenn. I said, well, there weren't that many people there. Well, junior high, juniors, they had to be there. But, you know, the point is, I'm on that stage. I'm on the stage where Billie Holiday was. I'm on the stage where Duke Ellington was. I'm on the stage where Pearl Bailey was. I mean, you know, it's just like... This is part of the story of our city. Why do we need to know it? But we can't preach a city we don't know. We can't preach a city we don't know. And I've been so encouraged by this community. You know, we will often have community groups that will invite experts from the city in just to tell them about the city. Those of you that go to ANC meetings, people that are shooting articles back and forth about the city. This church was birthed out of the idea that we are going to be students of the city because a Christian that is disinterested in culture is a contradiction in terms. And you'll be an ineffective priest. So we've got to know the city if we're to priest it well. We also need to feel for the city, and that means be heartfelt and humble. Now, upon hearing the news of the city, Nehemiah is overwhelmed with emotion. He clearly just doesn't get it around his head. He gets his heart around it. And he'll do this all through the book. You will see him. He's a passionate guy. He'll celebrate at times. He will be filled with righteous indignation over oppression. I mean, they're going to be dealing with the sort of opposition where you're, you're holding, uh, you know, a sense of Bible in one hand and a sword in the other hand. And he also isn't afraid to grieve. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. Maybe you've had a situation in your life where You've lost someone you love dearly. You've been part of a tragedy that occurred in your hometown, some traumatic event. Or maybe it's been a breakup you've gone through, uh, something dear that has been taken from you, and all you could do for days was to, to weep and to be sad. 
And I would ask you, has a city ever done that to you? Have you ever been so affected by a city, this city, that you felt like all you could do was be weepy for a couple days? Because it's a sign of a priest. Nehemiah feels so deeply. He sees the former glory, the former strength of what Jerusalem was. And now he sees vulnerability. There's poverty. There's oppression. And he is brought to his knees, and he is broken in his heart. It brings him low. It brings him low. He allows himself to feel it. I know it's hard day in and day out to allow yourself to feel it. Because we not only live in the city, but we also live in the age where all the tragedy of the world is coming to us all the time, right? It's just not easy these days because we're having to feel so much. But it's always been a mark of God's priest. Abraham pleads over Sodom. Moses pleads for Israel. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And there we have the mark of the great high priest. In the book of Hebrews chapter 4, what's the distinguishing characteristic of that high priest? He is a high priest that sympathizes in every respect. That's the mark of a priest. They sympathize for the city. They feel less inclined to judge and to scorn, but they deepen their heart. They feel for it in a sympathetic way. And by that we find out from our grace high priest that he just didn't know our trials and temptations, friends. He feels them. He feels them. Literally felt them. The prophet Isaiah would tell us that he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was afflicted and he was smitten by his stripes. He was wounded and we are healed by his wounds. He doesn't just know you. He feels you. He felt you the deepest you could possibly feel someone. He died for you. He's a high priest that feels. Amen? Oh, you need to know that. You need to know that if you're struggling this week and you think, I wonder if he even feels. He can't help but feel. And he also feels for cities. I mean, in Zechariah 8, God says, I am jealous. I am jealous for the day when old men and women will sit on the street by the gates. I am jealous for the day when the young children will play again in the streets. You know, in the show that Ended a couple years ago, The Wire, which was based on the city and police and crime in Baltimore. You know, it's connected enough to us where you can go, yeah, you know, that makes sense. And there's a particular episode where uh, the police have moved the drug dealers to one area of the city. And when they do it, something happens. People begin to come outside again. People begin to visit on the stoops. People begin to plant gardens. Little kids are playing in the seat. One little kid street, one little kid sets up a snow cone stand. It's this idea of what happens when people can play in the streets again. My friends, there's only some neighborhoods where people can play in the streets, right? And priests of the city care for the prosperity of all the city. Every area where people can live, walk, play. A place where city gates will be open, as Isaiah says. Walls will be repaired. And the Lord said, the city will no longer be called forsaken. It will be called, I delight in you. You are my delight. It's a picture of the heavenly city. And effective priests have always operated with the confidence that God's got his heart around it. That he cares. But they're also humble. 
You notice Nehemiah doesn't grieve just about what happened to the city, but why it happened. He doesn't just mourn about the state of the city. He mourns his own sins and the sins of his people. Day and night, he says, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Now, this can be kind of surprising because, let's just be honest, the church has in the past, and Christians have in the past, many times pointed at the city and said, that's the problem, the city. And what struck me as I read this prayer is, Nehemiah doesn't say, he doesn't confess one sin of Babylon or Persia. You notice that? I mean, Babylon was not friendly. Persia was just maybe a little bit better. He doesn't confess one of their sins. Because he knows before the city had been taken, it had fallen. Before it had exploded, it had imploded. When the delegation came, they only talked about trouble, they talked about shame. And so a priest, a humble priest, will always begin by looking within. You know, when I used to do ministry up on Harvard University's campus, I used to tell the students there, and you've heard me say this, I have half your gifts and all your idols. You know, the longer, you can laugh, that's true. Half their gifts and all their idols. You know, when you're on that campus, uh, I I found that the gods of the campus, man, uh, you know, they weren't just out there, they were in here. The intellect. Uh, I remember one time sort of deciding, maybe I'll get a master's degree here. And, you know, the pastor I was under, man, this guy just shot so straight. (laughs) And he just called me out. I was like, well, why do you want to do that? You know, is it so you feel like you belong and you're legitimate? Enough! You know, the gods of the city, the tradition, all that stuff. You and I, if we're going to be effective priests, we have to own up to the gods of the city in our heart. You know, the ambition that poisons injustice is in my heart. The part of me that wants to say, let me be comfortable and shielded from all the other stuff and let everything else rot, that's in my heart. The racism that wants to say, I bet I know why that person said that to me. It's in our hearts. And you and I have to own it. And it means two things at least. That that priests of a city spend less time confessing the sins of the city and more time confessing their own. That's what we have to do. You know, I have searched um, through the offices of the Scripture. I have made a quick, close search. I have found the office of prophet. I have found the office of priest. I have found the office of king. I have seen the office of elder. I have seen the office of deacon. Nehemiah is the governor. The one office I can't seem to find is chief complainer. I've been looking for that office because I'm sure I hold it. It feels so good to complain, doesn't it? It feels good to complain about you know, the fact that I'm two feet into the crosswalk and the police officer gives me a ticket. How can I not be in the crosswalk because I can't get to the cars that are going this way? I can't even see. Or the fact that I feel like I've got to take a picnic lunch with me to the inspection center because I could be there for hours as far as I know. Or the fact that my neighbor will take their little dog poop bag and they'll put it in my garbage can. And I... Don't they know that the garbage man's not going to reach in and pull out that little poop bag and then open up my bag and put it in the bag? It's going to be left there. So every week I'm going to open up and I have to reach down and take the poop bag, open it up, put it in my bag. And I'm picking up my dog's poop bag all day long. Oh, was I complaining? 
feels so good to complain, doesn't it? feels so good to complain. And if we're going to be high priest, it means we have to give up the office of chief complainer and become chief confessor. And we also have to see that we're part of the problem. Now, this is interesting to me. Now, Nehemiah did not, as far as we know, again, reside in Jerusalem. Well, we knew he didn't reside there. And yet he still feels like it's got something to say about him. Because I know you may say, listen, I've only been here for six weeks. I've only been here for six months. I've only been here for six years. You know, what do I have to do with the, the problems of the city? My friends, it's because the moment you step in a city, you step into the story of the city. The moment you come to a place, you enter into its story. And so, you know, the passivity or, you know, uh, the activity of what I do or what I buy or where I spend my time or where I walk or where I live, whatever it would be, I am having an impact and an influence of the city. And so just like Nehemiah, we realize, well, wait a second. I've got to ask myself, how am I interacting with this place? It's a tourist mentality, and there's nothing wrong with tourists if you're here. If you're a tourist, it's a wonderful thing to be if you don't live there. If you live there and act like a tourist, that's a terrible thing to do. Because the mentality, and this is the danger, this is the danger. If you see yourself as sort of a tourist, you will never see your culpability, but you'll also never see your opportunity, the opportunity to shape and impact the city. I mean, I don't care if you're here for a year, you can have a powerful impact on the story of this city. And it begins with praying over the city, our last point. Recently, I heard someone say that Washington is a city of imperatives. You know, the imperative verb is the verb of action, action. Well, Nehemiah was a man of imperatives. Nehemiah was a man of action. Nehemiah was a guy that got it done. And what's so impressive to me is where does he start? He starts with prayer. I'm sure everything in his body wanted to get up and say, We're going. I'm going to fix this thing. He starts with prayer in the face of this terrible news. And in fact, you know something? He prays for four months before he ever says anything to the king. And in fact, he prays twice as long as he works. The wall will only take 52 days, just shy of two months. He will pray for four months. I think there's a lesson for us there. Pray twice as hard as you work. Especially when you're in a situation in a city where the odds are so strong and the odds are so tough. He knew what he was up against. I mean, he had already been brought to his knees. This was overwhelming. The gates are burned down. The city's in a shambles. There was something in him that went, I'm going to, I better pray. And I better keep praying. He continually prayed and he fasted. And I think he did it as well because he was trying to fight perhaps the greatest enemy if you decide to rebuild the city. And that's the enemy of despair. If you decide to hunker and stay in a city and minister... That is the greatest enemy that you will face, your own despair. He is in a place of great sadness. And it's easy for us to get in that place too, isn't it? Maybe it's despair over the education system that continues to struggle. Maybe it's despair about the reports of corruption. It doesn't matter what administration or what they, they just keep coming. Maybe it's despairing over the racial injustice in the justice system. Someone has said, you know, if you're guilty and rich, the justice system works better for you rather than someone that's innocent and poor. We despair about all these things. 
But this wasn't new. This wasn't new to God. It wasn't new to Nehemiah as a priest because this stuff is happening to Jerusalem. I mean, again, it's, there's poverty, there's oppression. We'll read, we'll unpack these things as we come together. But Nehemiah, he's brought down low. He's brought down to this place. What gets him to his feet or what gets him to his knees? What gets him? It's praying. And as he prays, it's like hope is getting into his soul and his sails are being lifted up and he prays for four months and he's still sad, but he has enough strength to actually do something about it. Prayer is the strength that you and I need to be priests. Prayer is what empowers the hope that you and I need to be priests. And it's three kinds of hope. First of all, prayer centers our hope. When Nehemiah begins with prayer, he shows that he doesn't confuse a priest of the city with savior of the city. And, you know, we have said before that if one, there's a distinctive about Washington, D.C., is people that come here typically are people that want to change the world. They want to do stuff. They're doers. They're imperative people, many of them. And I would just say, for those of us that are Christians here, we've got to resist that with all our might. Because we are not saviors of the city. We are priests of the city. And only God can be savior of the city. And that means we have to outpray our work. You know, I, I've mentioned this organization before, but they, you know, they really have had an impact in the way I think about this. International Justice Mission, IJM. Some of you work for them. Many of you have been part of them. But you know what's most impressive to me? This is an organization that deals with human trafficking and bonded slaves and has had a wonderful impact around the consciousness, around the world, but also the actual work. And I, you know what the secret is? Every day they gather, every day in their office, it's, the day starts off with day of meditation and prayer. And then they have a whole retreat devoted to prayer once a year. I don't know many churches that do that. I mean, it's inspired our own church to be praying that way during the day, praying about the work because we realize we've got to pray ahead of the work. This work is too much. I mean, the, I, you know, those of us that have been just here for eight or nine years just start to feel tired. Those of you that are in the classrooms, those of you that are working on the streets, or those of you that are working around the world with wonderful causes you know, in developing nations, you get tired. Prayer centers you from going, I'm not the Savior. God has always been the Savior of the city. And it focuses our hope. You look at this prayer. This is not an unfocused, generic prayer to God. He locks into the character and person of God in prayer. There are three things that we see in it. Number one, he realizes that God can outlift anybody. He says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, we are servants. You have redeemed us by your great power and by your strong hand. He's saying, the problem of my city is not too heavy for God. God can lift it up. He's got strong enough arms. He can outlift anybody. But to do that, you've got to have a God like Nehemiah has, and that is a superlative adjective God. You notice he has superlatives and adjectives. It's just not God. It's the awesome God. It's not just Lord. It's the great Lord. Do you have a God of superlatives and adjectives? Now, usually our problems get the superlatives and adjectives, right? And we're not many detailed with God, but, you know, we're really detailed with our problems. I can tell you a lot about my problems. And while I'm up here, I think I just might. No, I can tell you a lot of details about my problems, right? Can I give you details about the God I pray to? When you pray, are there adjectives and superlatives? Oh, great Lord. Sovereign Lord. That is the stuff that gives you and I the hope we need to go against what we need to do. 
That's where it changes. And he also outlasts. He's a God that can outlast. He keeps his covenant promises. He's the God that remembers. Nehemiah is quoting Moses when, Mo- when Moses, God through Moses, said, Listen, if you rebel, you're going to be scattered. That's the exile. But if you repent, you will be forgiven, and I will restore the city. My friends, if God's people repent, trust, and serve, Do we really think sin is going to win against that? Do we really think that injustice is going to win over justice with the righteous God? Do we really think that evil is going to have the last word in this city if Christians begin to repent and trust and serve God? Do we really think the city is going to remain in the same condition? No way! No way! Because the God of heaven and earth does His work. He will do it. He'll not only outlast, but he'll outlove. Steadfast love. Hebrew hesed. What does that mean? Gracious, faithful, persistent love of God. Man, we need that. On the days where you feel like, you know, I just lived in this city like a total consumer today. I used it. I hated my neighbor. I barked at everybody. I need forgiveness. You have steadfast love at the end of that day. Or maybe, you know, I get to the end of the day and I just feel like I have forgotten everybody. He hasn't forgotten you. Steadfast love at the end of the day. It's the steadfast love of God that will fill our tank so you and I can do what we need to do. It's the grace of God that will be the expulsive power for you and I to move forward. But lastly, it centers our hope, it focuses our hope, it sustains our hope. The book of Nehemiah begins with prayer. The book of Nehemiah ends with prayer. And as we study the work going all the way through it, there is just this prayerfulness. There is this God awareness. At every turn where they're doing stuff, the Lord God was with me. The hand of God was with me. How do you recognize that God is in your work? Prayer helps you see it. It's the prayerfulness that makes you God aware that he is here with me. He's doing little things and he is doing big things. And it fills you with hope so that you keep working against opposition and against struggle. If you and I stop working, you know what happened already. We stopped praying. If you and I stopped hoping, you know what happened. We stopped praying. If you and I are just doing our work like everybody else is doing their work in this town, you know what happened. We stopped praying. Prayer is the thing that sensitizes us. So my dear friends, it's not a mistake that you're here tonight and it's not a mistake that we're in this city. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God has placed you in this city as a priest. You've got a job. The priesthood of all believers. And if you are not a Christian, I'd invite you into the priesthood. I'd invite you into the grand work of God in this city. And as priest, we'll know it, we'll feel it, and we'll pray for it together. Please pray with me now as we rebuild the city. Oh God, we're newcomers. Your people and your churches have been in this city for hundreds of years many in the hardest years, and they have prayed and they have labored. We're newcomers, but we want to be upcomers. We want to be people that really know it and serve and priest this city.
We pray that the city would be different because we are serving that way. We pray that you would use our ragtag group to build your kingdom in Washington, D.C. And we pray for the prosperity of this city. We pray for the mercy of the city. We pray especially for the poor and oppressed. They always feel it hardest. We pray for those that feel like they're just in cycles of despair. We pray for the, the groaning families where their sons and their fathers have been incarcerated, perhaps without justice. We pray for the own idols in our hearts that you would help us crucify them. And we pray that you would give us strength. In Christ's name, amen.